Welcome today. We are in Matthew chapter 22, as you can see up there on the screen, but let's go ahead and start with a word of prayer. I've got some uh, great parables before us today, one in particular, uh, the parable of the wedding banquet, and then um, some challenges presented to Jesus by the Jewish religious leaders. So a lot of ground to cover in a short amount of time. So let us pray. Oh, gracious God and most merciful Father, who has vouchsafed us the rich and precious jewel of thy holy word. Assist us with thy spirit that it may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to thine own image, to build us up into the perfect building of thy Christ, and to increase us in all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for the same Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please go ahead, and I trust that you do have your Bibles with you. After all, it is a Bible study, so you won't get very far without it. But if you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 22, please. And let's just go ahead and read through the first 14 verses. We may get further than this today, um, but we're going to start with um, these first 14 verses. And I'll go ahead and read through the section, and then we'll come back and take a closer look. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they had found both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called but few are chosen. Sometimes, and we've noted this in the past in our study of Matthew, sometimes the Lord's parables, which are profound teachings, uh, they are intended to teach us one or two spiritual lessons. We said that you can't get hung up on the details. Um, if you get hung up on some of the details, you miss the point of the parable. Um, it's like the parable of the prodigal son. If you get hung up on what the pods represent and what the pigs represent and that sort of thing, you inevitably miss the point of the parable. But while the parables are simple, they are not simplistic. And we said that there are times when the parables are difficult to understand, difficult to interpret. Now, sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes Jesus explains them. He explains, for example, the parable of the sower and what the seed represents and the types of soil and who the sower is and so forth. And as a result, we understand those parables very well. But there are some parables, for example, some of the parables in Matthew chapter 13, which are the parables of the kingdom, 
that can be a little bit complicated and can be difficult. And sometimes even the scholars and the commentators disagree on the exact meaning of what the parable is teaching. Well, let me just say that is not the case here in the parables that we find in Matthew's chapter 21 and 22. These parables are easy to understand. In fact, they are all too clear. Uh, the parable of the two sons, the parable of the tenants, and the one we have before us this morning, the parable of the wedding feast. In fact, if you look at the last two verses of the last chapter, Matthew chapter 21, you can see that even the chief priests and the Pharisees, for whom these parables were meant, uh, understood very clear what they meant. We read in verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard these parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. These parables, uh, after Jesus' entrance into the city of Jerusalem, are meant to be a picture of the nation of Israel and the lack of faith on the part of the people, the fruitless religion of Israel in the first century, what we would call Second Temple Judaism. Uh, this was a nation that had been blessed by God, uh, but had fallen away and had rejected the prophets and indeed was at the point of rejecting uh, the king's own son. So these parables were understood by the Jewish religious leaders and as a consequence, they were enraged against Jesus uh, because these were parables of judgment on them. And that is the case with the parable that we have before us today. Um, the first thing to understand is that again, these are parables about the nation of Israel. Um, it's pretty easy to understand what the various parts of these parable, this parable represents. Uh, you ask the question, who is the king in the parable of the wedding feast? Well, the king, of course, is God. That's Jesus' whole point. Who is the king? Who is the sovereign? It is God himself. Who are the nobles in this story? Well, the nobles, of course, are the Jewish people. Uh, the king had a wedding feast, and he invited his nobles. He invited those who were of a privileged status. Uh, the Jewish religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, even the people of Jerusalem understood that this was a parable about them. God was their king. Unlike the other nations of the world, unlike the Roman Empire, their king was not a Caesar. Their king was God himself. They were the nobles. They were the ones who had a privileged position. Uh, Paul makes this point very clear in Romans chapter 9 when he speaks of all of the privileges that the Israelites have. In chapter 9, verse 4, he says, they are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them, he says, belongs the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. So this parable is a parable about the nation of Israel. It's about God as the king. The nobles are the Israelites themselves. They have all of these blessings that have been bestowed upon them as God's chosen people. Who are the messengers who are sent out to invite the guests, invite the nobles? The messengers, of course, are the prophets. The prophets down through the ages who've been calling the people into fellowship with God. Who is the son in the story? Well, the son, of course, is Jesus Christ himself. That's the Lord's whole point. He has already ridden into Jerusalem on the back of that donkey. He has presented himself in an unambiguous way as the Messiah, as the king. What is the wedding feast in this story? The wedding feast, of course, is the marriage supper of the Lamb, that, that great event at the end of time when God will gather his people to him, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And who are the people of the streets? Well, the people of the streets, of course, are the Gentiles. 
because the nobles refused to come because they killed the messengers and ultimately killed the son, he invited others. He invited the riffraff. And in this case, that would have been anybody that was not Jewish, who was not a member of this noble nation. This would have been the Gentiles, um, the people, the Greeks. So these were the ones who were invited in off the streets. The first thing to understand is that Jesus was telling this parable so that the people might understand that it was about them. He rides into Jerusalem. He presents himself as the king. But when he gets there, what does he find? He finds a people who are practicing a fruitless religion. That's why he had cursed the fig tree in last week's lesson. These were a people who had all of the advantages you can possibly imagine. And yet they took those privileges for granted. And they reject the messengers. And they rejected the king. And that's one of the reasons why the Jewish religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, were so angry with Jesus. They indeed perceived that these parables were about them. Uh, really, you have to remember that the parable of the wedding feast goes with the parable of the two sons and the parable of the tenants. Now, it appears in a different chapter, in a new chapter here in Matthew's gospel. But as I've said many times before, these chapter divisions were not put into the Bible as we have it today until the Middle Ages. So in Matthew's original narrative, there would have been no chapter divisions. The first two parables would have flown naturally into the third. So these come together. They're, they're meant to be a cluster, and they're meant to send the same message, a message about the nation of Israel. This is often the case with Jesus' parables. If you think about it, the parable of the prodigal son is really also a, a story about the nation of Israel, isn't it? That there was a man, a wealthy man, who had two sons. Uh, one son was... Um, uh, a prodigal, and he went off and he lived in a far country, and he squandered his inheritance on loose living. What's that a picture of? Well, some might say it's a picture of the Gentiles. That's what the Gentiles had done. God had created mankind, but some went off and did their own thing. But there was a faithful son who remained at home, and who was the faithful son? The faithful son would represent the nation of Israel. And then, of course, the prodigal comes back home. He is forgiven by the father. He is welcomed back into the household but the son who had remained at home is what? He's envious of this son who is welcomed back. And that is a picture of Israel in the first century. They didn't want the Gentiles to be included. So all of these parables were about the nation of Israel and the people, particularly the Jewish religious leaders, understood that. But we need to understand that while these parables were meant to apply to the people of Jesus' day, these parables still have application for us as well. They were meant for an audience in the first century, but they still have application for us living in the 21st century, too. And that's what I want us to take a look at. All right, this is a parable that applies to them, and it's very easy for us to say, well, then it doesn't have anything to say to us. But that's not necessarily the case. What I want to suggest to you today is that as this parable in Jesus' day was about the nation of Israel and the Jewish people in particular, so today... This parable applies in many respects to those of us who have been raised in Christian homes or raised in a Christian country, but like the Jewish people, despite all of our advantages, refuse to honor the king's summons. You see, there is a sense in which just as the Jewish people were the nobles in this parable in the first century, we are the nobles in the 21st century just as they had received all of these promises. Let me read to you again from Romans chapter 9. Paul says, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, 
the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. If you think about it, no other nation on the face of the earth had those privileges. That's Paul's whole point. The Israelites, the Jews, the Hebrew people, they were the ones who were blessed. God chose them, not because of anything that they had done, but simply because it pleased him to do so. And he bestowed upon them all these blessings. Well, if you think about it, all of the things that were given to Israel here in Romans chapter 9 have been given to us as Christian people to the church today. To us belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To us belong the patriarchs, and to us belongs the Christ, who is God over all. So when you think about this parable and how it applies to us today, you have to put yourself in the position of the nobles. God is issuing an invitation to us, privileged people who have had the opportunity to hear the good news, to hear the gospel, to live in a country, the most Christian country in the world. And an invitation has gone out. Messengers have been sent. But the point of the parable is that even though this is a great honor to be invited to the king's table, many people today nevertheless refuse it. Kill the messengers. If they could, would kill the son, and indeed did kill the son, so that God will bring down judgment upon them. Let's just go ahead and take the parable apart a little bit. The first thing to notice is that an invitation has gone out, and it's an invitation from the king. Now, if you think about it, that's about the highest honor that anybody can possibly receive, to be invited to a royal wedding. Uh, perhaps uh, you got up early in the morning and watched the wedding of Prince Charles and Princess Diana back in 1980 or 82. I can't remember which it was. I remember getting up with my mother and getting up and watching that royal wedding. And perhaps you've seen some of the royal weddings that have taken place, the most recent one between Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. Uh, royal weddings are extraordinary events. What an honor to be invited to that sort of thing. But the important thing to remember about a king's invitation is that it's not merely a high honor. There is a sense in which a king's summons is also a sovereign's command. He is the king after all. And, and the kings in the ancient world in particular did not rule by the pleasure of the people. Kings don't run for re-election. Kings rule by divine right. So when the king in the ancient world issued an invitation, you had to have a very compelling reason not to come. It wasn't just simply an invitation, it was a command. If you have your finger in Matthew chapter 22, for just a moment, turn to Acts chapter 17, and let me show you uh, what I mean. Acts chapter 17 tells the story of Paul and his journey to the city of Athens, one of the great cities of the ancient world, great center in Greece. It was the intellectual center of the ancient world in the first century. And you all know the story. Um, Paul preached to the people of Athens. He was invited to address the Areopagus, the great debating society that existed there in Greece, and Paul reasoned with them. And at one point, he spoke about Jesus and his resurrection. And he said to the people of Athens that in the past, God had overlooked ignorance. 
But now having sent Jesus Christ, he is not going to overlook that ignorance anymore. Look at verse 30 of Acts chapter 17. Paul says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The word that I want you to notice here is the word commands. So often when we think of the gospel, we think of the gospel giving, being given to us as an invitation. Uh, it's an invitation for us to come and be in relationship, be in fellowship with God and with Jesus Christ. But as an invitation, it's something that we can accept or it's something that we can reject. It's interesting that Paul, as he presents the gospel to the Athenians in the first century, doesn't present this so much as an invitation, a gracious invitation, but instead he presents it as a what? As a command. God commands people to repent. Why? Because he is the sovereign. He is the king. So as we go back here to Matthew chapter 22 and read through this parable of the wedding feast, we need to understand that in one sense, yes, it is a gracious invitation that God issues, that he issues to us as he issued it to the nation of Israel. But on the other hand, it is also a command. It is, it is a command to acknowledge God for who he is, the Lord, the King. Now, this king issues this invitation, a gracious invitation, a great honor, but also a command, and what happens? Well, what happens, of course, is that the guests make excuse as to why they can't come. Now, they have all kinds of excuses as to why they can't be there. Uh, verse 5 says, but they paid no attention. One went off to his farm, another to his business. Um, I think it's in Luke's gospel that we have uh, the same story being told. And on that occasion, we're told that one man had bought a field, and he felt that he needed to go off and take a look at the field. Uh, another man had bought a, a yoke of oxen, and he needed to go off and tend to the oxen. Another man said that he had just been married himself and couldn't come to the wedding feast. Everybody had an invitation, but the point here is that all of the invitations, or, or rather, everybody had an excuse, but the point here is that all of the excuses are trivial. The king, the sovereign, has invited them to a wedding feast to honor his son, his son and heir. It's an honor. It's also a command. He is the king after all, but they come up with all kinds of trivial reasons as to why they cannot attend. I mean, okay, he, somebody bought a yoke of oxen, but that yoke of oxen could be taken care of at a later point. Especially if they were nobles, they could have entrusted the care of the oxen to some servant. All right, one man had gone off and he had purchased a field and he wanted to go see the field, but that could have been put off to another time. And even the man who had just been married himself, when he says, I can't come because I myself had just been married, certainly his bride would have been welcomed now at the wedding feast. The point is that every excuse that people offer is a trivial excuse. And in refusing to come, what they are really doing is they are rejecting the king's hospitality. They are rebelling against the king. And there will be severe consequences for it. 
Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who preached on this on many occasions, uh, talked about this himself and uh, talked about how this was such a problem in his own day. Um, here's what he had to say. He said, today, this same class of people will be found among the children of godly parents. As I said, this is not so much just a parable about ancient Israel. It's a parable about people who've been raised to hear the gospel their whole lives. Perhaps they've been raised in the church, all the privileges that that entails. But he said, today, this same class will be found among the children of godly parents, dedicated from their birth, prayed for by loving piety, listening to the gospel from their childhood, and yet remaining unsaved. We look to these to come to Jesus. We naturally hope that they will feast upon the provisions of his grace and that their parents will receive Jesus. But alas, how often is the case that they will not come? And of course, they have all kinds of excuses as to why they will not come. I love the way Spurgeon puts it here. He says, they'll complain about the messengers. They can't come to the king's feast because the messenger didn't relay the message in an appropriate way. In this case, the preacher. He says, a preacher may be too rhetorical. He said, well, then let a plain speaking person be tried. They'll complain he may be too weighty. Well, let another come with a parable and an anecdote. Alas, he said, with some of you, the thing that is wanted is not a new voice, but a new heart. You would listen no better to a new messenger than you would listen to the old one. Now, we all know situations like this. People who have been raised in Christian homes, uh, perhaps they have been raised to hear the gospel. They have all of the privileges that are associated with that. And yet, for whatever reason, they refuse to hear the king's summon. Or they hear the king's summon and they give trivial excuses as to why they cannot come and enjoy his wedding feast. That's really what this parable is all about. So what happens then when the king invites the nobility and they refuse to come and they make trivial excuses? Well, we're told that what the king does is something unexpected. He goes out and he invites others in. Chapter 22, verse 8, then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. So go, therefore, into the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. And so the wedding hall was filled with guests. One thing to understand about God is that he is not about to be dishonored, nor is he about to let his son be dishonored. When the Jewish people ultimately reject the messengers, when they reject this gracious invitation, indeed, when they rejected this command, what did God do? He was intent on making sure that his son was honored. He was intent on having this wedding feast. And so what he does is he sends out his messengers to invite others, others that are not noble. But even though they are not worthy, they are nevertheless grateful. Now, in one sense, you look at this story, and that sounds so out of character for a king to do. He invites all of the dukes and the earls and the nobility of the kingdom. They refuse to come. And so he decides to go out and invite the riffraff, the people of the street, to come in to a wedding feast, the wedding feast of the son and heir. That sounds extraordinary. 
but it's not extraordinary when you consider that the king is God. It's perfectly in character with God. That is exactly what God would do. His purposes, his plans are not going to be thwarted. If the nobles do not want to come, then he will invite those who will be grateful for the invitation. Paul said this to the Corinthians. He reminded them in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that not many of them were noble. Not many of them were of great birth. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 26. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Here is a parable. Just think about it. It's a parable of Israel. This is the story of Israel. God called them when they had done great things, when they'd become a noble people worthy of his attention. No. When God called the nation of Israel, where were they? They were slaves in Egypt, making bricks without straw. They had accomplished nothing. They were the least of the nations of the earth, and yet God set his affection upon them. And he raised up Moses to be his deliverer. And God brought them out of their captivity by signs and wonders and the power of his outstretched arm. He cared for them during their wanderings in the wilderness. He gave them water from the rock, manna from heaven. The pillar of cloud led them by day, the pillar of fire by night. He led them into a promised land. He made a covenant with them. He gave them the law. He gave them the privileges of having a personal relationship with him. No other nation on earth had that. And yet these people, instead of receiving this gracious invitation, instead of acknowledging and benefiting from all of these privileges, did what? They turned their back again and again on God. Again and again, they turned their back on the king. But the king was gracious, and he sent messengers. He sent the prophets to them over and over again, calling them back to repentance, calling them back into fellowship. And what did they do? They killed the prophets. Jesus, we're told, as he rode into Jerusalem, stood there on the brow of the hill overlooking the city of Jerusalem, and he wept for the city. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how like a mother hen I have longed to gather you under my wings, but you would have none of it. You, Jerusalem, who kill the prophets. And Jesus presented himself as the son. Surely they would honor the son if they wouldn't honor the messengers, but what would they do with the son? They would take the son and kill him themselves. It's a picture of Jerusalem. It's a picture of Israel. But my friends, it's also a picture of us. Many of us have been raised in a Christian nation. Now, it may be that you weren't raised in a Christian home. And it may even be that you were raised in a church where you never really heard the gospel. But if you've been raised in America, you had the opportunity to hear the gospel. We are a free nation. The Bible itself is more readily available in this period in history than at any other time in history. And many of us were raised in Christian homes. We did hear the gospel. We were given all of these opportunities. And yet many of us, if we have to be honest, if we look back over the course of our lives, would have to admit that like the nobles in this story, 
we didn't appreciate all of these blessings and we turned our back on God. There is a sense in which we are no better than the nation of Israel. But God is gracious. And if there are those who will reject his gospel, he will extend it to anyone, anyone at all. He doesn't care what their background is. He doesn't care about their family history. Anyone who is willing to come is invited to the wedding feast. So it's a gracious invitation. But there is this last part of the parable that is a little troubling. As Gentiles, you and I can rejoice about the fact that even though Israel rejected the summons, God extended the invitation to others. Paul and his companions went out, preached the gospel in places like Athens and Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, Philippi, Ephesus, everywhere. And you and I are here today as a consequence of that. But the story ends with all of these people being invited in, people who were not of noble birth, but nevertheless being included in this wonderful feast. And yet when the king comes in to look at the guests, he sees a man there who had no wedding garment. This is a troubling part of the story because this man has no wedding garment and when the king sees him, he asks the question, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And we're told he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We might say to ourselves, well, that seems so out of character. Here is the king inviting anybody to come in because the nobles refuse, he invites the riffraff from the street to come in, but somebody shows up not properly attired and the king loses his temper and throws him out? What's, what's all that about? Well, this is what you might call a case of inverse pride. It's not a case where you had to come and you had to have the most expensive clothing, but if you came, you needed to show respect for the king. In other words, here was a man who really was not worthy of coming to the feast, but he was invited. It was an honor. But when he shows up, he doesn't have the courtesy to wear the best that he can in order to honor the king. He feels as though the king owes him. Well, you know, there are many people in the world who feel the same way. There are many people in the world who feel that God owes them. You know, I think about young people today. Uh, many of them feel as though they are owed something by others. Uh, a recent poll was taken of young people, and the question was asked, do you think it is the responsibility of the government, of the state, to take care of you in your old age? And I was astonished to learn that the vast majority of young people under the age of 30 think it is the duty, it is the responsibility of the state to take care of them. They think that they are owed something by the country. Now you think about that. Things that in a previous generation would have been considered a privilege are now considered to be entitlements. So, for example, a college education in the past was considered a privilege. If you got it, you regarded it as a blessing. But today, many people regard it as a what? As something that is owed to them. It is a right. 
Well, that's the case with this man. He felt as though the king owed him something. So he could come just as he was, and the king had no choice but to accept him just as he was. Well, there are many people in the world like that today who feel that God is somehow their debtor. God owes them something. But the scriptures are very clear, my friends. God owes us nothing. God doesn't owe us a thing. If we got what we deserved, what we would get is judgment. We would get exactly what Jesus was talking about with the nobles who refused to come. And what happened was that they were what? They were judged severely. He sent his troops to destroy them. And that's exactly what happened to this man. He came not properly attired, not honoring the king. And as a result, even though he was invited, because he did not come in the proper attire, he was thrown out. Well, what is the proper attire? What are we talking about here when we say anybody may come? The nobles have rejected the invitation, but now the invitation goes out to everybody. Anybody may respond to the gospel call. It's a command by God to come and be a part of his fellowship but we have to be properly attired. What is the proper attire? The proper attire, of course, is the righteousness of Christ. You may come, but if you're going to come, you cannot come in your own filthy rags. You have to come in the righteous attire of Jesus Christ. Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf was a famous Moravian reformer in the 18th century, and he wrote a hymn that describes this quite beautifully. He said, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds in these arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my head. Now, this parable is about God issuing an invitation, but it's also a command. It's a command for all people who have wandered astray to come back. You're invited off the street, doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter if you come from a Christian family or don't come from a Christian family. Everybody is invited to the feast. But if you come to the feast, you need to understand that you need to come in the proper attire. You cannot come in your own righteousness. Some years ago, uh, there was a pastor down in Florida at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. His name was D. James Kennedy. And he developed a program called Evangelism Explosion. It was very successful, very successful actually in Pittsburgh, the Diocese of Pittsburgh, the evangelical diocese in which I uh, grew up, uh, actually uh, adopted this and used it as an evangelism program. And it's really interesting. What they would ask, they would knock on people's doors and they would uh, try to share the gospel with them. And the way they would do this is by asking this simple question. And I want you to just, as I ask it, ask it in your own mind. I'm going to pause. I'm going to leave a pregnant pause for you to ask it in your own mind. The question was this, if you were to die today, that is to say, if you were to step outside your house today to take a walk, um, to get out of the, the COVID um, quarantine, and you just wanted to get out and get some fresh air or take the dog for a walk, and you were hit by a car, and moments later standing before the king of the whole universe, and the king was to ask you the question, why should I let you in to my wedding banquet? Why should I let you in with all of the other guests? What would your answer be? 
How would you answer the king? Your entrance into eternal life is dependent on your answer. What would you say to the king? Would you say, well, I come from nobility? Because that's what the Israelites were going to say. We are the children of Abraham. But the scripture says God can raise up from the stones children for Abraham. Are you going to say, well, I, I, I've lived a pretty good life? I mean, I'm not perfect, I know that, but, but I've lived a pretty good life. I'm certainly better than my neighbor is, and I'm, I'm going to trust that God is going to grade on the curve. Is that what you're going to say? Because then the king might ask the question, well, how good do you really think you are? How good do you think you have to be in order to get in? Because Jesus says, if it's a matter of being good in order to get into the kingdom of God, you've got to be as good as God himself. What would you say if the king said, why should I let you in to my wedding banquet? The only answer that will gain you entrance is the answer that Zinzendorf gave. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. The only reason any of us will gain entrance into the kingdom of God, the only way any of us will ultimately be invited into the wedding feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb, is if we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You all know one of my favorite hymns is There is a Fountain. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains, lose all their guilty stains, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Nobody gets into heaven on somebody else's coattails. You may get into the governor's office or into the Oval Office riding on the coattails of another individual, but nobody gets into the kingdom of God on the basis of somebody else's coattails. It doesn't matter that your mother and father were Christians. It doesn't matter that your father was on the vestry or your mother was the head of the altar guild. It doesn't matter if you were confirmed or even baptized in the church. The Jews had all of the blessings of the covenant, and yet they refused to respond to the king's invitation. Is that the case with you? Have you heard the cry, and are you responding to it? The king's command. And if so, if you're showing up at the wedding feast, what is your attire? How are you dressed? Will you gain entrance? Well, that was the parable that Jesus told to these people. And as you can tell, the Jewish religious leaders understood very well what it meant. And we understand very well what it means as well. And they found it to be offensive. They found it to be offensive that Jesus was saying they could not enter just as they were, that something else was required. They found it offensive that he told them that they had rejected the prophets, that they had rejected the king, that if they could, they would kill the king's son himself. And we sometimes find that offensive as well. So what was the result? Well, the result is what happened next. And we only have a few minutes. I don't know that we're going to get through this, but let's go ahead and look at this next section. Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 
and following. Beginning at verse 15, we read, Then the Pharisees went out and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they didn't like what Jesus had to say about them. They were in no doubt that these parables were about them. And so they decided to go out and plot against him, how to entangle him. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the word of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and whose inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, well, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but render to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Let's keep reading. The same day the Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and the third, down to the seventh. After them all, the women died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. But when the Pharisees heard it, and that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So Jesus has told the Jewish religious leaders these two, three parables, the parable of the two sons, the parable of the tenants in the vineyard and the parable of the wedding feast, and they correctly surmise that these parables are about them. Parables about their refusal to acknowledge the king, and they are offended by it. And so what follows is their attempt, three attempts really, to entrap Jesus. That reminds me of that line from Amazing grace through many dangers, toils, and snares. Well, that's what these are. These are snares. They are angry with Jesus. They are offended by what he has to say about them. And so what they are intent on doing is somehow discrediting him, entrapping him, ensnaring him in the eyes of the people. You can understand why they're enraged. To begin with, Jesus had declared himself to be the Messiah, the Savior. 
in no uncertain terms. There's no ambiguity. He had presented himself. He ridden into Jerusalem on the back of that donkey. The people were acknowledging him. He had just performed that great miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. There was no doubt in his mind or the minds of anybody that day that he was presenting himself as the Messiah. Second thing that he had done is he'd come up and he'd cleansed the temple. He said that it was supposed to be a house of prayer. They turned it into a den of thieves. And so he drove out the money changers. He accused them of fruitless religion. That's what the parable of the fig tree was all about, a case of false advertising. And now in this parable of the wedding feast, he taught them that the kingdom was going to be taken away from them. And it was going to be given what? To others. And so offended by what Jesus had to say, they knew by this point they had to get rid of him. They had to somehow discredit him in the eyes of the people. And that's what these attempts were all about. Remember, they understood very clearly that what Jesus was saying about them. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. And so they had no choice but to somehow, if they couldn't get at him, at least ensnare him. There are three attempts here. The first attempt to ensnare Jesus is this whole issue of paying taxes. It's really interesting. Verse 15 says, and they sent their disciples, that is the Pharisees, along with the Herodians. Now, this is an unholy alliance. The Pharisees, we all know who the Pharisees were. They were the teachers of the law. They oftentimes are allied with the scribes, the scribes and the Pharisees. But the Herodians were not a religious party. They were a political party. The Herodians were the supporter of King Herod. The Pharisees despised Herod because Herod worked for the Romans. So as far as the Pharisees were concerned, the Herodians were really collaborators with the enemy. But isn't it interesting that here in Matthew chapter 22, they ally themselves together the Pharisees and the Herodians. It's that old idea of my enemy's enemy is my friend. As much as the Pharisees despised the Herodians and the Herodians had no time for the Pharisees, both of these groups despised Jesus. They both regarded Jesus as a threat. And so they came to him with a very crafty and dangerous question. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? Now here's why it was crafty and dangerous. They felt that no matter how Jesus answered this question, he was going to be making an enemy of somebody. On the one hand, if Jesus said, it is right to pay taxes to Caesar, then the people who regarded the Romans as the enemy, as a pagan polytheistic empire that needed to be overthrown, they would have been offended by Jesus. They would have turned against him. They would have said that he's no better than the Herodians. He's just a collaborator. But on the other hand, if Jesus had said, no, it's not right to pay taxes to Caesar. The Roman Empire worships all kinds of pagan deities. They're oppressing God's chosen people. Well, then they still felt that they had him. Because then they would be able to report to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, that Jesus was inciting insurrection. So they felt that no matter how Jesus answered this question, they had him. They were so offended by what he had to say about them that they felt that this was the way to get at him. 
How did Jesus reply? It was a brilliant response. He said, show me the coin. And on the screen, you can see the coin, uh, the denarius that was used to pay the tax in that day. And Jesus asks the question. He says, I'll answer yours, but first you have to answer mine. Show me the coin. They showed him a coin. Somebody dug around, produced the coin that was used to pay the tax, and he said, whose image is on it? And on the front of the coin, of course, was the image of the emperor. And they said, Caesar's. And he says, well, if it's got Caesar's image on it, fine. Go ahead and give it to Caesar. But give to God what belongs to God. Now, the scripture doesn't say this, but it's speculation. And I think it's probably good speculation that what Jesus did at that point, having held up the coin and showed the image of Caesar, was then he turned it over. And on the backside of the coin was always an image of one of the Roman gods. So on the front side was the emperor's image. On the backside was an image of one of the gods. Jesus was saying, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. But then he shows the picture of the deity and he says, but give to God what belongs to God. What was Jesus saying? He was saying, all right, the coin belongs to Caesar, then give it to Caesar. But you have to give to God what belongs to him. In other words, you have been made in the image of God. The coin has Caesar's imprint on it, but your life has the imprint of God. You've been made in his image. You are a reflection of his glory. So go ahead and give the coin to Caesar, but give your lives to God. No more fruitless religion. Give yourself over to him in the same way that you are obligated to give the tax over to the empire. Give your life over to God. Wholeheartedly, everything that you have in his service. And they realized that it was an absolutely brilliant response. Look at verse 22. When they heard it, they marveled and they left him, and they went away. In the words of Shakespeare, they found themselves hoist on their own petard. Jesus had answered them brilliantly. He was constantly doing this, turning the tide against them. Now, Jesus does two things in this response. The first thing that he does is he upholds Caesar's authority. Uh, this is an important thing for us as Christians. Uh, sometimes we get very frustrated with the government. We get very frustrated with paying taxes. Nobody likes to pay taxes in any time, at any point in history. But Jesus does two things. First thing he does is he upholds Caesar's authority. He says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Uh, this is a message to us as Christian people. We have an obligation to be subject to the civil authorities. Peter makes this point very clear in his first epistle. Paul makes it very clear in Romans chapter 13. We are to be subject to the governing authorities. Why? Because they exist because God allows them to exist. But the second thing that Jesus does is while he says we are to be subject to Caesar's authority, you'll notice that he places limits on Caesar's authority. He says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but give to God what belongs to God. This is a powerful lesson in how we as Christians are to deal with the state. When it comes to dealing with civil authorities, when it comes to dealing with secular authorities, 
there are really only three options that we face. The first option is what I call God alone having the authority. Now, there have been people in the history of the world who've been said that secular authorities are not legitimate authorities. Now, that were, there were people in Jesus' day who did not regard the Roman Empire as a legitimate authority. John the Baptist, for example, and the Essenes who lived down in the Judean wilderness, they did not regard the empire as a legitimate authority. And as a consequence, they withdrew. I call this the monastic option. In the early days of the church's history, there were some that felt that secular authorities were so corrupt that they had to escape the world. They were called the anchorites. They went out and they lived in the wilderness, the monastic option. The problem with that particular option is that Jesus made it very clear we were not meant to be taken out of the world. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, he said, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them while they are in it. In other words, you and I have an obligation to be in the world. We are meant to be salt and light in the world, to have a leavening influence on the culture. So we cannot simply say that God alone has the authority. There are other authorities and we are subject to them. The second option is Caesar alone has authority. Uh, this is the option of secularism. Uh, this is the most dangerous option. This is the view that Caesar is the only legitimate authority, that the state is the only legitimate authority. Uh, this is one of the reasons why the American system of government has what we call checks and balances. It's one of the reasons why we have a judicial branch, an executive branch, and a legislative branch. It's because the early founding fathers understood what many people today don't understand, and that is that human beings are corruptible and sinful, and they can't be trusted. And that's why we have a series of checks and balances. We have the executive branch that is responsible for carrying out the laws, but the executive branch cannot make the laws. That's the judicial branch or the legislative branch. And the legislative branch can make the laws, but ultimately it's up to the judicial branch to determine whether those laws are constitutional or not. So we have this series of checks and balances, and it's for this reason, is because Caesar alone cannot be trusted. The third option is Caesar and Christ have authority. This is a shared authority, but in this case, Caesar is dominant. I call this the coward's option. So you have the option of the monastics who say God alone is authority. You've got to escape the world. You've got the option of secularism, which says Caesar alone has authority. God has no place in society. You have the third option, which is a shared authority. Caesar and Christ share the authority, but Caesar is dominant. This is the coward's option. This was Pontius Pilate's option. Pilate recognized that Jesus was innocent, but condemned him anyway. This is one of the most chilling pictures I've ever seen. Uh, it was taken in the late 1930s in Germany. The man on the far right is Goebbels, Joseph Goebbels, who was the minister for propaganda for the Nazis. You'll see two bishops off to the left, all of them giving the Nazi salute. In the 1930s, the church in Germany, with the exception of a few, capitulated to the Nazis. They said that both Caesar and God have authority, but ultimately they gave the dominant authority to Caesar. That's what I call the coward's option. 
But the fourth option, which is the biblical option, is an option where God and Caesar have authority. This is the case where Christ is dominant. Both have a legitimate authority, but Christ's authority is dominant. And I say this is the biblical option, and this is ultimately Peter's option. The same Peter who in uh, his first epistle wrote that we are to be subject to the authorities and subject to the emperor also realized that when he was forced to choose between the two, he had to choose to be obedient to God first. Uh, we're going to close out today with a look at Acts chapter 5, beginning at verse 27. This is just after the resurrection, after the Lord's ascension. We're told that the apostles found themselves arrested. They were thrown into prison. Uh, they were ultimately delivered uh, by God. And then they were brought before the council. And that's where we pick up the narrative. Acts chapter 5, verse 27. And when they, that is the religious leaders, brought them, the apostles, in, they set them before the council, the Sanhedrin, the highest court in the land. And the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name, the name of Jesus. Yet here you are, filling Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. In other words, here was an authority telling them strictly not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus Christ. Look at Peter's response. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. And God has exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. So Peter says, yes, the Sanhedrin has authority. Yes, Caesar has authority. The state has authority. And as Christians, we are subject to that authority. But if the choice has to be made between the two, in other words, if a conflict ever arises between the state and between God, we owe our ultimate allegiance to God. And that was the thing that ultimately stumped these religious leaders. Jesus had told these parables. They were parables about them. They were convicted in their hearts. And instead of repenting, they turned against Christ and they began to plot as to how to ensnare him. And the first attempt was this attempt about this, this whole question about paying taxes to Caesar. And Jesus answered them perfectly. He answered them in such a way that they could say nothing else. On the one hand, he didn't deny the, the authority of Caesar. But on the other hand, he did not deny the authority of God. And they marveled at his response. They marveled at his response, and they left him, and they went away. Now, what we're going to see next week is that they went away for a time. That's not to say that they gave up. As time went by, what Jesus had to say about them, the conviction that was in their heart, caused them to turn against him. And what was an attempt to simply ensnare him is ultimately going to become an attempt to destroy him. You know, sometimes we are like that ourselves. We don't like what the scripture has to say about us. We don't like the fact that 
The scripture says that we cannot come before God on the basis of our own righteousness, that our righteousness is nothing like nothing but filthy rags before God. We don't like the fact that the scripture says that we are not all basically good, but we are all basically God-haters. That's what Paul says in Romans. We don't like the idea that, that God is God. One of the reasons why the people in this story rejected the king's invitation is because they wanted to be the king. You know, if you think about it, the real reason that these people in Jesus' parable rejected the king is because they hated the king. They hated the fact that he was king. And sometimes if we're honest with ourselves, we have to admit that we hate the fact that God is God. We hate the fact that God is holy and we are not. We hate the fact that we cannot save ourselves and be accepted just as we are. And we hate the fact that God is always going to be holy and we are always going to be sinful and there's only one way to be saved. And that is through the king's son. So these are powerful parables. And you can begin to understand at least why the Pharisees and the scribes and the Herodians took offense at Jesus. And why they turned against him. But may God grant that we will do better than them. That we will realize that a gracious invitation has gone out to us all. And that we have been given a great honor the honor to come and be a part of God's family, to be welcomed into his courts, to be given a seat at the marriage supper of the Lamb. But that in order to gain entrance, we must come properly attired. We must give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but having been made in his image, we must give to God all that is his, clothed in Christ's righteousness, surrendering ourselves, our lives to his service all the days of our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you in awe of Jesus' ability to paint a picture, a picture of the human condition, a picture of a sovereign king, a gracious king, and a gracious invitation. Father, we are the nobles in this story. We have been given so many privileges, and so often we squander those and go off and follow our own desires. Grant us the grace to come back. And grant us the grace to give to God what rightfully belongs to him. Having been made in his image, grant us the grace to give ourselves over wholly and completely to him. That we may rejoice and find that peace which you alone can give, the peace which passes human understanding. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.